good afternoon everybody thank you all so much for uh, tuning into this call uh, so a lot of people ask me you write all these different threads on investing and it seems like there are a hundred different things we have to know uh, to become successful active investors uh, so what what parts of this are necessary and what parts are not necessary how much do we really need to know if we want to uh just get by as active investors investing is not really our profession or anything like that uh, we don't manage money uh for other people professionally or anything like that just for individual investors um how much should individual investors know because we are all investors in one way or another uh, if you if you look at interest rates uh, that are available today and if you look at inflation Uh, it is very clear that for most of us uh, if we want to build any kind of wealth in life uh, we can't rely on getting um, an interest from our uh, checking accounts or savings accounts or anything like that and our our money is losing its purchasing power uh, every day because of inflation so um, the only real way to uh, bridge this gap uh, is to invest our money and hope to earn a good return on it over time uh, so we are all um, um we all uh, have the need to be investors if we want to achieve some kind of financial freedom in life um and of course some of us select to be passive investors we just buy index funds um a diversified set of index funds over a period of time they have done pretty well and um, the expectation is that uh, they will continue to do reasonably well over the long term um but if we want to do active stock picking if we want to do active investors if we want to be an active investor and we don't want to go the passive route what are all things that we need to know uh, so what what are the key concepts that uh, active investors must know and uh, how do we learn these concepts efficiently so uh, if i give you 100 uh, different books and tell you to read all of them um then by the time you become uh, an active investor by the time you are ready to buy your first stock it could be 10 years by the time you finish reading all this so we don't want uh, to take too much time uh, we want to learn the concepts well and we want to get started investing uh, so what exactly do we do uh, to try and learn these different subjects so this this i've been asked several variations of this question um by a lot of people and i thought uh, this would be a good episode to sort of address that so um in my opinion uh, if you want to be a successful active investor uh, you need to know six different kinds of subjects uh, we need to know a little bit of economics uh, we need to know a little bit about businesses how businesses work how they raise capital how they earn a return for their owners things like that we need to know a little bit of accounting and finance uh, how to read financial statements and how to uh, interpret them to be able to tell whether a business is a good business or not things like that uh, then the fourth thing is financial modeling this is where all the math comes in um, so if you uh, have a sequence of cash flows how do you calculate uh, the return you get from that sequence of cash flows uh what is the impact of uh, leverage on a particular company or on your particular portfolio things like that 
so basics of financial modeling with the view to answering uh, financial questions. Uh, so this is um, uh, the, the fourth thing that we need to learn. And the fifth thing, I think, is decision making under uncertainty. So we all live in uncertain and volatile times. And if we are going to invest, uh, we need to construct a portfolio. So it's not enough to be able to model the behavior of individual companies. It's not enough to read individual uh, 10Ks and 10Qs and things like that. We should also take a portfolio level view of risk and so on. And we should be able to um, diversify our portfolio appropriately, make sure no single event can uh, harm us very much. Um, make sure that um, you know, just because one company in our portfolio fails or something like that, uh, or uh, it doesn't take our overall net worth with it, things like this. So uh, understanding how to cope with uncertainty, uh, probability in decision making, and how to take decisions about investing, uh, what to buy, at what price to buy, whether to do dollar cost averaging or not to do dollar cost averaging, things like this, uh, based on fundamental probabilistic ideas. So that is the fifth thing. And the last thing we should learn is uh, our own psychology. So um, there are two aspects to this. One is uh, we should know ourselves fairly well. And the second is we should know some general misconceptions that tend to affect all humans, including us. Um, so, uh, so, so broadly speaking, these are the different six different areas that we need to become familiar with. So economics, business, accounting and financial statements, financial modeling, probability and decision making under uncertainty, and the basics of uh, psychology. Uh, so now the question is, uh, okay, so uh, within each of these, so you, you can you can spend a lifetime studying economics, for example, or you, you, can, you can spend your entire life uh, trying to understand uh, probability um, because there's just so much to learn. So uh, how much of each of these uh, subjects should we learn? And um, of course, the more we know, the better it is. Uh, but there is a certain law of diminishing returns there. Uh, so um, it, it is true that the more we know, the in, in general, uh, the better off we are as investors because we have more mental models and more concepts that we can apply and so on. But of course, uh, if we spend more and more time uh, just researching economics uh, or psychology or something like that, uh, we, we will never actually get to uh, investing, which is what we want to do. So at some point, there is a law of diminishing returns where uh, incremental amount of time spent learning a subject doesn't really give us a whole lot of incremental benefit. And at that time, it is generally advisable to um, sort of stop focusing on that subject if the subject is not intrinsically interesting to us. Uh, so, so... In each of these different subjects, I just jotted down some uh, key ideas. Some, in, in my view, these are sort of must-learn concepts in these different areas. So, for example, let's, let's take economics. That's the first thing I said uh, investors should know. So what, what in economics? So um, economics itself is divided into two big disciplines. There's microeconomics and macroeconomics. And there are some ideas in microeconomics and some ideas in macroeconomics that I think all active investors will benefit from knowing. 
So if you take microeconomics, that is the basic uh, thing about uh, free markets, how free markets work, how the forces of supply and demand, how they combine together to determine the price for various goods and services. Uh, what is the effect of regulation? So if the market price is, uh, say, um, $100 for a particular good, but then the government comes and says, no, you can't charge more than $80 for it, what's going to happen in that system? Uh, what typically happens, some historical examples, things like that. Um, then uh, there is the notion of uh, consumer surplus and producer surplus and elasticity and all these different uh, ways of thinking about the supply and demand curve, essentially. Uh, then one very important idea of economics, which is not really emphasized that much, is game theory. And um, a lot of people think game theory is a very esoteric uh, branch of mathematics and so on. Um, and yes, it can be. But the fundamentals of game theory, um, all investors, I think, would benefit from knowing. So what, what is game theory? Game theory is essentially uh, a, a set of rules or um, a, a set of concepts that describe how individuals will behave. So you have a bunch of individual agents um, and uh, these agents, uh, typically they, they, they're people or companies or whatever. So you, you have a bunch of individual businesses or people and uh, each one of them has a particular set of incentives and uh, they're going to respond in a particular way. But then uh, the final outcome, so when they respond in a way to the incentives that they see, the outcome that they get out of this, the payoff that they get by responding in this way, uh, that not, not just depends on how, how others around them behave. So for example, if uh, Coca-Cola decides to raise its price uh, because it wants to make more money or whatever, uh, but Pepsi doesn't raise its price, that could affect Coca-Cola's profits. Um, so uh, Coca-Cola's profits may be dependent not just on how it behaves, but also on how Pepsi behaves things like that. Uh, so the, the basic study of these kinds of interactions where your outcome depends not just on what you do, but also on what other uh, agents in the system do and how these forces uh, interplay with one another, that is called game theory. And um, it's, it's a branch of economics. Uh, usually when you take an introductory economics textbook, you, you, you usually don't find any mention of game theory in it. But I think understanding how different uh, people behave, how people respond to different kinds of incentives and so on is fundamental to investors, how people and businesses will behave. Um, so I think that is important to understand for uh, all active investors. Um, then there are some very key ideas, uh, like, for example, the idea of opportunity cost. So uh, if you evaluate a particular opportunity, you can't just evaluate it in isolation you have to compare it to other available opportunities out there and choose the best among them. That idea is a very central part of microeconomics. And then this idea of marginal thinking. So th there are a whole bunch of concepts in economics that are essentially uh, these marginal concepts. What marginal typically means is, uh, so so uh, how, how much advertising should you do on, on Facebook or something if you're a company? Well, um, for as long as uh, the marginal dollar that is spent on advertising gets you 
uh, more than $1 of profits, you will keep spending on advertising. So as long as the marginal benefit exceeds the marginal cost. Uh, so this, this idea of thinking, not, not looking at individual quantities like uh, prices or supply or costs or benefits or anything like that. Don't, don't look at the quantities. Look at how a change in one quantity will produce a change in another quantity. So, for example, if you decide to spend $1 more on advertising, how much more uh, uh, will you be able to make in profits? And if you are able to generate more than $1 in profits uh, for each $1 that you spend in advertising, then that advertising is a good spend. Um, uh, it, it, it makes sense to spend that money on advertising because you gain more than what you lose. Something like that. Uh, so this idea of marginal thinking is central to economics and it's very, very useful in investing as well. Um, so that's microeconomics. And in macroeconomics, uh, the most important things to understand are fiscal and monetary policy. So how does government policy uh, and the policy of the central bank, how, how do they uh, affect the economy? Uh, so just the basics. So uh, how, how do they affect interest rates? And uh, if interest rates change, what else is going to change? Is, uh, um, is there going to be a recession or uh, will it spur growth or will there be unemployment? So how are these different market cycles created and basic theories about these things? So uh, that, that's pretty much all the economics that an active investor needs to know. Uh, I, I, I don't really think um, investors need too much more than what I just mentioned. Uh, and how do you how do we pick up these concepts? Well, there are excellent books on economics. Uh, there's a wonderful book written by uh, Thomas Sewell. Um, his, uh, it's, I think it's called Basic Economics. Then uh, Gregory Mankiw has has written a very nice book on economics. Paul Samuelson, um, Keynes, um, uh, they they've all written uh, good books on economics. One shortcut I like. Uh, to learn economics is to just go and read all of uh, Howard Marx's memos. So they're available for free online. And if you just read all of uh, all the memos that Howard Marx has written, uh, you will actually know more about micro and macro economics than what you'll find by reading uh, all these uh, dry economics textbooks. So uh, I, I think um, Howard Marx's letters are, are a great way to understand many of these concepts. Um, so the second thing is business. So how, how businesses work. So throughout the history of capitalism, um, business owners have benefited tremendously uh, through the wealth creation um, done by these businesses over time. So how exactly do these businesses work? How they are able to generate a return for their owners? Basic concepts here. So uh, I very much like Peter Kaufman. Uh, so Peter Kaufman is the author of this book called Poor Charlie's Almanac. We've spoken about that book uh, many times in, on this podcast. And Peter Kaufman has this model for businesses where he says, uh, look, a business interacts with so many different agents uh, during its life. So the first uh, uh, kind of stakeholder, he calls these agents stakeholders. So the first kind of stakeholder uh, for a business are the owners of the business. So they typically put up some equity capital to get the business started and they typically spend an enormous amount of their time and effort uh, in the business to try and grow it and to nurture it and things like that. So the owners are one key constituent. 
uh, there's another group of people uh, the creditors uh, to from whom the business has borrowed money then there are suppliers who uh, supply to the business various uh, items that it needs for uh, creating goods and services and things like that uh, then there are the customers of the business uh, then there are employees and finally the government and the community that the business operates in so if you understand uh, how a business interacts with each of these different groups of people owners creditors suppliers customers employees uh, the government and the broader community if you have a good understanding of how a business interacts with all these different people uh, then you you pretty much have a good idea of how the business works and is it a good business or a not so good business and so on um, so i like this framework very much and peter kaufman says great businesses they strike win win relationships with all these different parties uh, so for example uh, the the typical example that is given is comcast so um, most customers of comcast the minute they can find a reasonably priced alternative they will leave comcast because comcast has treated its customers so badly for such a long time uh, so what peter kaufman says is that that is a big risk so you never want um, to have your business treat its customers so poorly that they are just sticking with you because they have no other choice because sooner or later some choice will emerge and when that choice emerges customers will leave in droves and then it will be too late to get them back this is peter kaufman's idea so as far as possible businesses should try to strike a uh, win-win relationships with all these different constituents don't take any of these constituents for granted because tomorrow the circumstances may be completely different and you may go out of business if you take one of them for granted so that that is the broad idea uh, so the general life cycle of a business how uh, businesses work they raise capital from owners and creditors then they either buy or build assets so assets can include uh, things like factories or um, uh, designs for a new app or whatever um, so they they buy and build something of value uh, and uh, th- this can be used to create products and services and uh, those products and services are used to generate cash uh, now part of this cash uh, is reinvested back into the business to buy or build even better assets even more assets even better products and services and so on so there is a feedback loop positive feedback loop going on here where a business is able to take the cash that it generates and then reinvest that cash back into itself to produce even more cash in the future so that feedback loop it's vital for active investors to understand this feedback loop it's called the magic of reinvested earnings um and finally a business will find that it over a period of time if it does this very successfully uh, sooner or later opportunities to reinvest the cash at attractive returns will dry up over time and so they will take the surplus cash and distribute it to owners through dividends or buybacks and so on so what are all the capital allocation decisions that go on in a business uh, how does a business allocate the cash that it has what kinds of projects does it invest in uh, things like this uh it's absolutely important for active investors to understand and um the the other key thing to understand is not just understand a business in isolation but also how uh it 
exists in a broader ecosystem? What kinds of uh, goods and services does it provide? And what the value chain looks like? Who are the competitors? What are the competitive dynamics? Things like that. Um, and for this, I recommend uh, two two big sources. So the uh, the biggest source that has taught me about businesses is Warren Buffett's letters. So if you just take, uh, read one letter per day. So there are maybe 60 letters or something like that. So Warren Buffett's letters to Berkshire shareholders. If you just take one letter per day and read it over a period of two months, uh, you'll be able to read all the 60 letters. And over those two months, you will become a much better uh much better investor because you understand businesses at a so much more fundamental level. So uh, that, that's a great way to learn more about businesses. Um, the other uh, person I recommend is Michael Porter. Uh, so Porter had uh, these ideas about competitive dynamics and so on. So when, when can you say that a business is robust? So typically when it's hard for new entrants to come and compete with the business or when there are no uh, good substitutes for a business's products in the minds of customers, things like that. So um, Michael Porter's ideas are also great. And there is a book called Understanding Michael Porter by Joan uh, Magretta, which is a much more readable account of Michael Porter's ideas than what uh, Porter himself has written. Uh, so the, these two sources have been very useful to me to understand uh, the nature of business and how businesses work and how they are able to create wealth for their owners over a long period of time. Um, the third thing is accounting and financial statements. So this is uh, kind of a dry area uh, and not, not many investors, uh, uh, even, even people who love investing uh, usually don't like accounting very much because it's uh, uh, so dry. Uh, but it is important to understand at least the basic financial statements and the basic concepts in accounting. So, for example, what is the difference between cash accounting versus accrual accounting? So if a, if a company goes out and buys some inventory today for cash, um, they can't immediately treat that cash uh, outflow as a cost because this is a cash outflow, but it is not yet a cost. It's a cost only when that inventory is used to make a product and then that product is sold uh, to a customer. So uh, concepts like this, uh, which uh, which are very clear when you uh, run a business, uh, are sometimes not so clear to investors because they uh, just look at these uh, financial statements and try to understand how businesses work. But uh, it is important to understand the fundamentals of accounting uh, so that uh, you don't get tripped up. Uh, so you should, at, at, at a very minimum, you should know how to read the three key financial statements, the balance sheet, the income statement, and the cash flow statement. So each line item that goes into the balance sheet. So uh, what are current assets and what are fixed assets and what is goodwill, things like that. So each item that goes into the balance sheet, each line item that goes into the income statement. So for example, uh, if, I, if I give you the income statement of the last 10 years or something like that for a company, uh, can you tell whether the company has operating leverage or not? Uh, so how fast have revenues grown? How fast have profits grown? So how do profits scale with revenues? How do each of the company's different costs, how do they scale with revenues? And um, so is there operating leverage or not? Ba basic things like this, uh, I think active investors should be able to take financial statements, read them, 
and uh, not just read them like an accountant would read them but also read them like an investor would read them so they can interpret the financial statements and figure out whether this is a good business or not so accountants are typically concerned with uh, how to record transactions they are usually not concerned very much with are these transactions actually the transactions of a good business do they actually make sense for the business or not so transaction happens some cash comes in or cash goes out some asset increases some other liability decreases accountant will just record all those transactions and make these financial statements it's up to an investor to uh, understand whether these transactions have done something to push the business forward uh, and so it's important to look at these statements from both standpoints an accountant standpoint and an investor's standpoint um, and for this i have this wonderful book called uh, the um, i think it's called accounting straight from the lemonade stand or something like that uh, it's it's a very beautiful book it's a short book and it's very easy to read not like all the other accounting books which are very dry so i i really like this particular book because it explains all the basic concepts using a lemonade stand as an example and um, so most of the fundamental concepts of accounting you can get just by reading this short book so you don't have to read some um complicated esoteric textbook and understand all the debits and credits and all all, all these different things so uh, that i think is enough knowledge for an investor um, the other uh, resource on accounting is uh, aswadhamodaran uh, professor aswadhamodaran he has a bunch of uh, videos on youtube uh, specifically about accounting and uh, those videos are also reasonably accessible uh, to beginners you don't have to know a whole lot about accounting uh, to understand those videos so i think those videos are a great way to pick up the fundamentals uh, so that is accounting uh, and financial modeling uh, the the fourth thing so that that is the basic math that goes into analyzing companies so if if i give you a, a stream of cash flows if i tell you okay if, uh, if you go and invest into this company at this particular price uh, these are the dividends that you will get over time and this is how the dividends will grow over time uh, what what is your return on this investment uh, you should be able to calculate that return uh, even without excel uh, things like that ba- basics of financial modeling basics of cash flows and irr calculations uh, things like that um, if if you learn uh, enough math to understand financial modeling uh, things like charlie munger's quote where he said you know you you take two businesses the first business earns 6% on capital and the second business earns 18% on capital now even if you buy the first business at a very big discount uh, if you hold it for say uh, 30 years or something like that and it earns that same 6% over the 30 years you're not going to really make a very uh, different return from that 6% you'll probably make 8% because you bought the business at a very cheap price or something like that but it will be in the ballpark of 6% if you own the business for a very long time uh, but on the other hand if you take this 18% earner uh, typically uh, you can buy this business at a very high price very uh, optically high looking price like say 50 times earnings or 40 times earnings some some high looking multiple uh, you can buy this business at that high multiple and if the business remains wonderful for a long period of time uh, the return that you get will be something close to the 18% return on capital that the business itself earns uh, so so buying a high quality business at a uh, high price 
is is sometimes preferable to buying a low quality business at a bargain basement price well the price can't be too high and the business has to remain high quality for a long period of time and so on so there is a bunch of caveats attached to the statement but if you just know the basic math of compounding and the basic math that goes into financial modeling you can tell very easily that charlie munger's statement is absolutely true and uh, you can create a simple spreadsheet that will illustrate this concept beautifully for you and um, it's it's just so revealing when you um, do the financial modeling for um, a real life company and see that it it fits the mold of this munger quote and you think that this is going to continue into the future so to learn financial modeling uh, i think the best way to learn learn it is to just study a bunch of financial models and then um, do financial modeling yourself uh, for a bunch of companies you are interested in and uh, the best way to study financial models at least the best way that i know is to take professor uh, aswad damodaran's uh, models so he has a whole bunch of spreadsheets where he has valued a whole bunch of companies apple facebook netflix um, peloton um, all these different companies he likes to take them and value them and then he likes to make these spreadsheets available uh, to people uh, for free so you you can just study these spreadsheets and look at where uh, uh, what uh, professor damodaran's assumptions are uh what are the techniques he's using for financial modeling and things like that so it's it's pretty easy uh to to learn the basics of modeling just by going through his spreadsheets um then we have uh, probability and decision making under uncertainty now a lot of people uh, they uh, they read books written by people like um, say um nasim talib and uh, the problem with reading just stopping with reading talib is i've spoken to a lot of people who have read all of talib's books but then if i uh, give them a simple math exercise uh, a, a simple uh, say a problem in uh, a simple puzzle in conditional probability or something like that uh, they they are not able to solve it uh, so it is important to uh, cultivate a broad based knowledge of probability and decision making under uncertainty where uh, it's important to not just know the fundamental concepts that uh, nasim talib and any duke and others are talking about but it's also equally important to be able to put numbers to work and uh, if if i give you a set of numbers to be able to reason with those numbers and do probabilistic calculations and uh, tell what is the probability of a particular event occurring or some, something like that uh, i i think that is an important skill uh, for investors because so much of uh, portfolio construction and diversification and position sizing and all these things so much of it uh, relies on probability and if you are going to uh, be trading options and things like that uh, on top of just stocks uh, it's absolutely important to be able to do probabilistic calculations Uh, so for this i i recommend uh, two sets of books one set is of course the non technical books by uh, nasim talib and any duke and michael morbison uh, th- these guys have done absolutely phenomenal uh, work explaining the concepts of probability to a lay person so it's great to start with those but um, i i would also suggest 
taking an undergraduate math textbook on probability the exact choice of the textbook doesn't really matter you can take any textbook and just work through some of the exercises and so on so uh, you can also understand um, that the, the, there's no understanding like actually solving puzzles and internalizing the concepts so um, that it's it's important to take uh, a simple undergraduate textbook or something like that and just work through the examples uh, so that you can actually put numbers to these concepts and uh, develop useful insights for investing uh, the last thing is uh, psychology psychology is not a quantitative science um, so uh, I, i find that uh, there are two basic uh, kinds of uh, psychology so one is the common psychological biases that we all uh, experience so for those kinds of things uh, i very much like uh, charlie munger's uh, uh, speech the psychology of human misjudgment where he walks us through 25 common psychological biases that all uh, uh, all humans face pretty much so there is um, uh, incentive cost bias so when when you have an incentive to think in a particular way you are going to think in that particular way uh, it's very hard to ig- Uh, avoid that bias and and so on and uh, th- th- there's just so many different biases uh, that charlie munger talks about and th- this is this speech uh, if you just read this one uh, chapter uh, in in poor charlie's almanac uh, you will probably know more psychology than most other investors so that is one uh, great resource the second great resource for psychology is uh, dan dan kahneman um, So Kahneman um, ha- has this wonderful book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, that that is a very good book to understand the basics of psychology. Um, then there is also uh, the work of Richard Thaler and others. Uh, they they have also done phenomenal work. Richard Thaler has a book called Nudge, I believe, and uh, that's also a very good book on understanding how basic how uh, we we all think we are very advanced, but we fall prey to the uh, to the most basic. Uh, psychological tricks of our own mind and uh, it's it's just so amazing uh, and for investing uh, just so we don't make any serious mistakes while investing and things like that uh, it is important to understand what are some of the common psychological pitfalls people fall into so we can try to avoid them while making investing related decisions with our money so that is the first part of psychology which is essentially uh, what are the common biases that tend to affect uh, uh, humanity in general uh, the second part of the psychology is you kind of have to understand yourself uh, so there are some biases that are common to all humans but there are also some traits that uh, that apply uniquely to uh, each individual person so uh, for example warren buffett is a long term driven uh, fundamental uh, investor and uh, the way warren buffett invests is completely different from the way somebody like jim simons or a, a quant like ed thorp how they invest they they are both extremely successful investors but they both uh, achieved success in completely different ways uh, so ed thorp chose a path that uh, that that he could uh, stick with for the long term and warren buffett chose a different path that he could stick with but they each understand each other really well and they understand themselves really well so they know 
what is the strategy that they can stick with over the long haul and how uh, so they they don't try to fight against their instincts they know their strengths and weaknesses and they choose a strategy to follow that plays to their strengths and that that is absolutely important uh, in investing to be able to understand yourself enough that you can pick and choose which investing strategies work for you over the long haul so um, so that 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 comes with an understanding of one's own psychology and uh, for that that there are these excellent uh, uh, introspective uh, books uh, that one can read so so for example uh, I, i like this book called atomic habits and th- there's also this uh, very nice book by um, i think it was marcus aurelius uh, called uh, meditations i believe uh, so um, th- these these kinds of books can uh, help guide your thinking but ul- ultimately uh, those who understand themselves well so understanding of oneself can't really come from a book it has to come from self reflection and introspection and things like that uh, so, so these things i think are important to investors as well uh, so that is pretty much all that i wanted to mention in this uh, uh, introduction so uh, it sure seems like a lot of things to learn to be a successful active investor uh, but through persistence one can cultivate all this knowledge and uh, it it's not just beneficial uh, for investing so for example if you really understand uh, your own psychology that 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 can benefit you in so many different ways in life it doesn't have to just uh, be for uh, for your investing so yeah th- these are my thoughts on the things investors need to know and uh, i'd be happy to uh, take callers now so the the next caller is uh, i believe Yinka Hi hi thank you um hey. thanks so much for your um going running us through that it's very insightful um so my question You're is welcome. about how to find i guess the good businesses because there's so much information out there so many different industries and this information overload essentially so how do you like what's your approach to i guess starting the process of that analysis that that's a great question so there are so many different industries and so many different companies that you can invest in so how how do you decide uh, which which companies to to pick and study for uh, in in greater detail is is that the question yeah uh, yeah that, that's absolutely a great question and it's a very valuable skill for an investor to cultivate as well so uh, to take a company's financial statements and then form a quick judgment about it so that you can decide whether to sink more resources into studying it or it's just uh, not your kind of company and to just leave it so typically uh, every investor has a circle of competence as buffett likes to call it so for example i i don't understand banks uh, so i i won't go anywhere near a bank even if it uh, appears to be super cheap on uh, price to book and price to earnings and all that uh, i don't really understand banks so i i'm not i'm not going to invest in in banks so uh, monish pabrai for example he he says uh, he doesn't invest in retail uh, retailers uh, 
so he's he hasn't uh, invested in Costco he hasn't invested in um, Best Buy Home Depot none none of these retailers because he says it's just too complicated for him uh, they are outside his circle of competence so uh, again it's useful to know the kinds of businesses that uh, you you will be able to understand and this is somewhat of a chicken and egg problem because uh, unless you study a bunch of businesses you don't really know which ones you understand um, but then you also need to solve this problem of uh, how to pick which businesses <laughs> uh, to to read uh, so so it it so what what i do is i typically go through i don't run stock screeners or anything like that i i uh, subscribe to a service called ticker and what ticker gives me is the last 10 years or 15 years worth of uh, financial statements for pretty much every single company out there so uh, i read the wall street journal uh, pretty much every day and if i uh, read the journal and uh, i when i read the business and finance section of the journal uh, if i come across a business that uh, i think i i will like uh, I, i go and uh, plug in the business's tick, uh, ticker symbol into ticker and i'm able to see the uh, the income statement the balance sheet and the uh, the cash flow statement for the last 10 years or 15 years or whatever from ticker ticker will tell me that so i do some quick uh, rule of thumb calculations i look at how fast revenue has been growing and is there operating leverage in this business have profits been growing faster than uh, revenues and um, has there been too much of uh, dilution through stock based compensation and things like this so um, are are they actually generating cash is every every dollar of earnings being converted into 1 dollar of cash uh, what 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 are their returns on capital look like so to to earn 1 dollar in earnings uh, how, how much capital does this business need and where is this capital coming from all these different things um, i i can quickly form a judgment uh, about this company maybe it takes something like 15 minutes or something like that to study a bunch of uh, financial statements and come to this judgment and then based on this judgment i decide whether i want to study this company further download the 10k and 10q and so on or whether to pass on and move to the next company in the list so this is usually how i approach uh, this, this particular uh, problem Great, thank you. Yeah, I think that's something I need to start doing like narrowing my focus <laughs> into like specific industries rather than trying to target everything. But yeah, thank you for explaining your point. Right, absolutely. It's vitally important to stick to your uh, circle of competence. Great, thank you. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh so the next caller is uh, Vinod Hi Tanke thank you Hello. for uh, hosting this session and thank you for taking my question as well um i have uh, my question is very simple like where, when do you sell the business um because there is a element of business uh, understanding and also element of psychology and also um uh, typically if you look at uh, the business models for most of the companies it is keep shrinking um the companies which is which was there in 80s 90s um no longer available and even uh, with the with the lot of developments in the digital ecosystem 
um, you see a lot of uh, competitions and also uh, maybe taking some hit in the margins as well where uh, uh, a lot of innovations coming in and the business uh, like that is also shrinking. Uh, having these considerations uh, without considering like reinvestment opportunity, like business A is better than business B, hence we are selling business uh, B and then investing our capital A. Um, without getting into that, uh, when do you genuinely sell the business where we see there is no point in no longer valid for in investment uh, uh, opportunity? Uh, right, exactly. So, um, in in practice, what I have done is I have, over the years, made two kinds of sell decisions. So, the first kind of sell decision is when I realized that I made a mistake. Uh, so, uh, as as investors, we we all make mistakes. We we think a company is really good when we invest into it. Uh, we we expect a certain say 10% or 15% growth in revenues or something like that. But quarter after quarter, uh, the company releases financial, um, releases earnings and uh, there's no growth. Uh, or every, uh, basically, everything that we expected did not happen. And uh, so at some point, we have to decide that uh, we are wrong about this particular company. Maybe uh, it's not a great company or maybe it's a decent company but uh, the ma uh, the people who are running it don't know how to run it or something like that so for whatever reason uh, we have to decide that okay we made a mistake with this company and uh, when i realized that i looked to get out uh, as as soon as possible uh, so so i have made mistakes of of this sort uh, several times so what what i like to say is in investing is not really about avoiding these kinds of mistakes investing is about making sure that even if you make a mistake, uh, you can survive it. You can um, uh, sort of recover from it and it doesn't uh, put a huge dent in your portfolio or something like that. The consequences of making mistakes uh, shouldn't be so severe that they take you out of the game entirely. Uh, so that is one kind of uh, business where I uh, follow the quarterly earnings and um, so on. I read the press releases and so on put out by the company. I read the 8Ks and uh, 10Ks and 10Qs and all that. And I feel that um, the company is not performing to what I thought they would perform when I bought the stock. So if I find that the company is like that, then I typically sell. So that is one criteria for selling. The other criteria for selling is um, when I think the forward returns of the company aren't going to look great uh, from today's prices. So I may have bought a stock at uh, $100 per share, thinking that the intrinsic value of the company at that time uh, is $200 a share or something like that. But let's say uh, in, in two years, uh, th this company has, uh, the, the, the stock has grown to $300 a share or something like that. So well above my estimate of intrinsic value uh, two years ago. Um, so now I have a choice. I can either uh, hold on to this company, um, uh, thinking that it's it's a good company, it's going to continue to perform well, uh, both the business and the stock are going to perform well. Or I can say, um, okay, maybe this company, the shares have risen too much in value. So uh, yes, the company is doing well, but then the stock has uh, sort of uh, 
exceeded uh, the uh, has run ahead of the business a little bit uh, so then i have to sit down and do some kind of financial modeling so so when I, when i do some modeling and i figure out that uh, okay um, the the future returns aren't going to be as great as what uh, i would like i sell the business and get out so th- this is my broad methodology for how how i think about selling sure and it is primarily based on the revenue growth even though you see a cost of capital is maintained margins are steady uh, the revenue growth uh, muted revenue growth would be the primary reasons for selling is it the right way to interpret well uh, it's not just revenue growth because i'm i'm uh, ultimately i'm interested in cash flows and uh, cash flows uh, come from profits and uh, so if a company is growing revenues quickly but profits aren't growing that quickly i i will be interested in understanding why uh, so it's not just revenue growth but revenue growth is definitely a, a part of it if i think a company will grow at 12% or something like that and they consistently disappoint me by growing at 3% or something like that um, then uh, i will use that um, as as a reason for considering whether i should get out of the company or not Okay, makes sense. Thank you. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, so is Vinod the last caller, or do we have any more callers? Oh, we we have uh, Inka again. Hello, hi. <laughs> um, I had another question, which um, is is a bit random, but I was wondering about for, from a business raising debt or raising equity, like what, what what's more expensive or what's preferable. uh that 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 is a great question <laughs> so um it's th- there is no single answer i i can't tell you right now uh, that debt is preferable or equity is preferable it depends on a whole host of factors uh, so typically uh, when a company raises debt uh, debt is essentially the company agreeing to a set of future financial obligations so whenever a company takes out debt today Uh, what it is doing is it gets cash today but in exchange for that cash it is agreeing to uh, a set of financial obligations in the future so these financial obligations may include uh, interest payments uh, so you have to figure out what the interest rate is but uh, other than interest payments debt can also include other things like for example uh, so so principal payments so when, when is the principal due and at what time uh, and how how should it be paid Uh, th- then there is some kinds of debt that uh, sort of convert into equity so if if the company uh, uh, has a share price that falls in a particular range or something like that then the company may be required to issue some equity so this is called convertible debt uh, so that there is that then when the company issues debt typically they agree to a bunch of uh, covenants so um, for for example if starbucks issues 1 billion dollars of debt today uh they they may have to agree that their interest coverage ratio will be above a particular ratio uh in the future or some something like that so they they agree to a bunch of debt covenants and those covenants can cause constraints on how starbucks can spend its money so what kinds of projects it can invest into and things like that so debt has all these different uh implications on the future of the company and debt um also has implications on margin of safety 
So for example, uh, how much cash does a company need to meet all its obligations and covenants and things like that? And is it able to generate that cash or not? So if um, Starbucks, for example, needs uh, to pay off $1 billion of debt in the next one year, uh, and Starbucks has, say, $0 of cash on hand today, so it has to be able to somehow generate that $1 billion uh, in the next one year. So uh, is Starbucks, w- will it be able to generate $1 billion? To what degree of confidence, uh, do, what, what degree of confidence do I have that Starbucks will be able to generate that cash? Um, so if, if it cannot raise that, that much of cash uh, and it's not able to raise debt, then it may be better for Starbucks to just issue equity instead of debt. Uh, sim- simply because uh, equity doesn't come with a set with the same set of financial obligations that debt does. Uh, so thing- things like that. So uh, if, if, if the company has a business model like like an airline or something like that. So his- historically, airlines have gone bankrupt time and time and time again because they've had too much debt and not enough cash flows. Uh, so the, the price of oil goes up, the price of pilots go up or whatever. Um, and suddenly uh, the airline has to go bankrupt. Uh, so th- this has happened many, many times in history. So uh, for an airline company, it may actually make sense to issue equity and not debt because uh, the first crisis that they run into the f- uh, when there's a recession or the economy contracts or something like that, airline will get into trouble. Uh, they may not be able to raise enough cash to meet their debt obligations. So things like that. So if... if the, the business is stable if it is generating a large amount of cash, far more cash than they will uh, ever foreseeably require in interest payments and things like that. Uh, then that may be an attractive uh, way to raise funds uh, if, if it is available on attractive terms, low interest rates and uh, favorable uh, long-term maturity schedules and things like that. Uh, but if those conditions are not true, if debt is available, but available only at a very high interest rate or something like that, um, then it may be more preferable for the company to issue equity. Uh, the main cost with equity, of course, is that it dilutes existing shareholders. So if, if a company issues equity by creating fresh shares out of thin air, uh, it, it does get a lot of cash for those shares uh, today. But the problem is uh, those existing shareholders who own the company are now diluted because there's a whole bunch of new shareholders and they have to share uh, all future cash flows of the company with these new shareholders. So uh, this dilution of existing shareholders can be a major problem, uh, but that's what you get when you issue equity. So typically what happens is uh, good capital allocators, uh, when the price of the company's stock is high, uh, they will issue equity. So if, if a stock is trading at something like 100 times earnings or something like that, uh, and uh, it's... Uh, in, in any reasonable estimate of intrinsic value, if, if the company is trading at well above intrinsic value, then it may make sense to uh, cash in some of that uh, by, uh, by by issuing shares at this high price and then uh, raising equity capital that way. Uh, but if the shares are trading at a depressed valuation, um, then uh, essentially when a company issues equity, what it is doing is it is selling uh, undervalued parts of itself uh, to the market, and that's not great for uh, continuing shareholders. So, uh, th- typically, these are all the constraints that come into uh, considerations that come into play when deciding between debt and equity. 
Thanks. Um, could I ask another follow-up? Um, oh, of course. Th- so you mentioned the only cost of raising a- equity is the dilution. Um, I've been learning more about like valuation and learning about like the cost of equity that you use to discount cash flows. And I was just wondering, like when I read about cost of equity, I, I heard that it's the expectation, expected return investors are looking at when they... Um, when they invest, but my, my thinking is that they don't expect a specific figure or else that would be like issuing debt. So I, I go a bit confused as to what right. that return is. Uh, so, so the word uh, cost of capital is, is a very, very confusing um, term in uh, finance. And um, the one thing that is more confusing than cost of capital is weighted average cost of capital, <laughs> which is even more confusing. And uh, so there are these finance professors, uh, including Aswadha Modaran and others, who um, come up with this notion of uh, a discount rate, essentially. So $1 today, uh, how, how much is it w- worth tomorrow? Uh, so so if, if you're going to get, a uh, say, $1.10 of cash tomorrow, uh, you may value that $1.10 at uh, just $1 today because that $1.10 is going to come tomorrow and not today. Uh, so my way of thinking about equity capital is just, uh, uh, it's it's the discount rate that the, the cost of equity capital is, is the discount rate that is used in DCFs and things like that. Uh, now, of course, that's not exactly right when a company has both debt and equity capital, you're supposed to take a weighted average cost of capital and so on. Uh, but generally speaking, um, one, one way to understand uh, the term cost of equity is to just substitute cost of equity with DCF discount rate in your mind. And this is what I do most of the time. And most of the time it has worked well for me. Um, now, um, you, you can ask the question, what, why is it called cost of capital when it should be called discount rate? And I haven't really found a good answer to this, but generally, when I substitute uh, cost of capital with DCF discount rate, I'm generally able to make sense of the discussion that is going on. Uh, so when I think of the cost of issuing equity capital, I think of dilution to shareholders because when um, it, it it's it's almost like a company is able to issue free, uh, it's able to issue shares out of thin air, right? Uh, the shares are the company's own currency. It's able to issue these shares and then sell those shares in the market and then get some cash for it. So that that is almost like getting uh, cash for nothing. Uh, But there is a cost, and the cost, to me at least, is the dilution that existing shareholders have to go through uh, when extra shares are created and sold in the market. Great. Thank you so much. That explains it very well. Thank Thank you. you. So let me take the next caller. SOS. Hi. Yay. Um, Wow. Thank you so much for such a a wonderful, uh, detailed explanation of very complex material. Uh, Really fantastic. You you really have a gift in in explaining things. So um, thank you again. Yes. Um, So I've got two questions for you. 
Um, so if you are, um, say, you know, you have a shorter time uh, investing time frame um, because of, um, say, age, right. um, uh, as far as um, um, selling shares versus reinvesting dividends and the t- any tax advantages um, around around that, would you um, recommend um, or, or want to talk about? Um, and then also I'd like to ask you, um, we know a lot of companies, um, have gone on sale, uh, recently. And, um, if you might be willing to share some of your, um, uh, few companies that you've really got your eye on eagerly waiting the, uh, next earnings season. Uh, right. Results. Both, both great questions. Um, uh, so uh, the the first question uh, l- let me just clarify that so uh, if you have a short term um, investment horizon or uh, well short term can mean dif- different things to different people so so let's let's say something of the order of 5 to 10 years or something yeah like that's what i was thinking like like 5 5 more like 5 years thanks sure um so um you're saying in in 5 years time um you, you will have to retire or something like that. And then yes. uh, you will have to fund a significant portion of your expenses from the portfolio. And at yeah, that start, time... Start, yeah, yeah, start using at least the, the maximum, um, I mean, the minimum required. Right. Uh, so at, at that time, uh, is, is it better to uh, use dividends or is it better to uh, sell stock? Is, is that what the yes. question? Uh-huh. Right. So... so Every time you get a dividend, uh, as far as I know, if 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 it's in a taxable account, uh, in the U.S., you you do have to pay taxes on the dividends. So um, there are these dividend uh, reinvestment programs and things like that, where you take the dividend that you get and then you reinvest it into buying more shares of the same stock. But as far as I know, you still have to pay taxes on the dividends. Uh, so. Uh, if you can meet expenses out of uh, dividends, that would be uh, ideal. Uh, now, it is true that uh, a couple um, married and filing jointly, I believe, uh, in the U.S. can take out um, more, more than 100. If, if dividend income is your only source of income, you can take out more than $100,000 in dividend income without paying a dime in federal oh. uh, income taxes. Uh, oh. So, so I, I have some tweets about this. So if, if you, so uh, on or around uh, tax day, which was April 18th in the, in the US uh, this year, uh, I, I posted a tweet about uh, how a, a couple can do this. Uh, so so uh, if you can fund your um, expenses through dividends, and uh, those expenses happen to be less than this uh, this cutoff of hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Uh, of course, you still have to pay state taxes. So uh, that, sure. that is that. Um, uh, but if your if your expenses uh, happen to be much less than hundred thousand dollars, and you you are getting hundred thousand dollars in in dividends, uh, then that seems like a reasonably tax free way uh, to uh, fund fund your retirement with yeah that's great i didn't i didn't know about that 100k um, right and it is also uh, you, you can also apply part of that 100k to uh, so, so it's dividends plus long-term capital gains right 
so so the tax treatment works uh, kind of similarly but the the dividends uh, the, the investing income should be your only source of income if you have other sources of income then um, your taxes may be affected in in other ways and so on right yes right um, and the next yeah. question about uh, whether uh, uh, what are the companies that i'm uh, looking at well usually i find that uh, talking about individual tickers um, ticker symbols is is a great way to alienate uh, half of uh, fintwit so no matter which ticker <laughs> you you mention uh, half the people will be uh, for it and half the people will be against it and think that you're a total moron <laughs> so so i generally don't like to uh, uh, talk about individual companies uh, but it is true that a lot of companies um, have been uh, their shares have been beaten down uh, quite a bit in the market and uh, i'm definitely interested um, in learning more about uh, certain kinds of companies so particularly uh, i'm interested in learning more about companies that have uh, negative working capital and the reason is very simple i um, it looks like we are uh, going into a high inflation uh, kind of uh, uh, economy and uh, when inflation is high um, typically there are certain kinds of companies that uh, benefit the most or um, maybe may benefit is the wrong word they they are hurt the least let me put it that way so uh-huh. so, so so there are uh, a few economic characteristics that i like to look for uh, to find companies that are reasonably robust to inflation and uh, one particular characteristic is they should be light on capital and negative working capital is is a, a great way to be light on capital uh, the second thing is they should have pricing power and uh, the third thing is uh, they should use debt judiciously uh, so typically inflation hurts uh, it hurts lenders but it helps borrowers so if a company has borrowed a lot of money at very favorable terms uh, that company will likely be a, a beneficiary of inflation so i like to look for companies that have these kinds of economic characteristics but i don't want to talk about individual names okay Uh, thank you. Yeah, you you talked about that. How um, I think last week or the week before about um, how they borrowed at um, if they did or did not borrow at at uh, favorable terms. So thank you right, for that. Right. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Is there is there a, an easier way um, to really analyze the um, their um, their debt? Um, to uh, on the um on the three statements that um like you know if you really want to kind of head towards head towards those numbers i know you've explained it before but it's a well, lot of information right right so uh, analyzing debt is always a hard problem because debt can be so dangerous and it can uh, everything can be chugging along smoothly uh, for a while and then suddenly uh, a company may not be able to meet its obligations and uh, it can spiral out of control really really quickly so it's very important to uh, analyze debt properly and uh, you you do have to look at all three financial statements to some extent because uh, 
the the income statement will tell you what the interest coverage ratio is and so on the cash flow statement will tell you how much of the cash the company needs to reinvest into its own operations so every dollar that the company has to reinvest is one dollar that is not available to pay off debt basically um, so if a company requires lots of ongoing reinvestments then uh, it, it probably shouldn't have too much debt on its balance sheet and the balance sheet of course will tell you how much debt is outstanding and things like that so right there i've mentioned all the three financial statements so you you do have to look at all the three if you want to get an understanding of the debt and uh, what is even more um, uh, sort of um, <laughs> what what requires even more effort is you have to go uh, to the notes uh, to the financial statements because the balance sheet will tell you how much debt the company has but it won't tell you when the debt is due when the payments are due what the terms of the debt are and things like that so if you want to understand what the interest rate is for example or when the maturity uh, of this particular debt is or um, so uh, how much how much money is due uh, at what points in the future things like that basic questions about the debt the company has is it convertible into equity or not so basic questions uh, like this if you want to answer you do have to not just read the three financial statements but also the notes to the financial statements so i i don't really know any easy way to do it uh, except maybe to avoid companies that have too much of debt altogether <laughs> but then um, companies that have a lot of debt also benefit from inflation so if you if you just avoid companies that seem to have a high debt to equity ratio or something like that you may be missing out on some opportunities there okay um, i i think that answered the soss question because i can no longer see her here so uh, thank you all very much for uh, sh showing up to this episode uh, i really enjoyed it and uh, so these are all uh, all the things that an investor needs to know um i've spent years trying to learn these things and uh, when i first got started with investing nobody really told me read all these different things uh, to be a better investor or something like that i i, I just sort of randomly stumbled onto all these different <laughs> things and so i thought it might be useful uh, to sort of come out with something like a curriculum that people can follow uh, to to improve themselves as investors so i hope this was useful to you and um, thank you all very much and see you next sunday bye bye